Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, Andrew, ever so much. So here we go, week two of our series, Transforming Truth. Truth is something that's dynamic in that it changes us when it touches our lives. Every step we make or take into the truth is a step into the light, is to step into hope, is to step into everything that God has for us in his kingdom. And last week we um, looked at the big theme of creation, the brilliance of the creation uh, poems, And one of the things we noted as we looked at Genesis chapter 1, or we reminded ourselves of, is that in Eastern thought, in Eastern writings, the the truths are there like treasures to be found, a bit like geocaching. Anyone ever done geocaching? Oh, a few of us in the room that were desperate enough to get our kids to go for a walk. We made up something about looking for treasure in order to get them out on a Saturday afternoon. But Eastern Writings is a bit like a geocache. You're going looking for uh, the treasure. And one such truth is buried in Genesis chapter 1 that we didn't unearth hardly at all last week. But I want to bring it into sharp focus uh, this morning. We did note that the creation is caught up with rhythms and numbers and that the number three was super significant. That there was a threeness about God as creator and word and spirit. When it talks about God making at the end of the poem, it talks about it three times and there were a number of other threes you might recall from last week. It's this threeness that becomes a treasure that unlocks something profound about who God is, that the rest of the Scriptures will take time to unpack. A nod and a wink that the whole story then goes on to help us see and understand. Before we get to three, we need to look at one. In the beginning, God. One God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just to be clear, against all the um, culture of its day, the Bible speaks again and again and again about being a monotheistic faith, a belief in one God, separate and distinct from all the other nations who believed in polytheism, who believed in many gods. And so when at the very important moment in the story, God is about to rescue his people from Egypt and he sends little old Moses who just reflecting on what Alan was saying, felt like he lacked confidence and courage and charisma, yet God put his hand on him and Moses said, what on earth am I going to say? I don't even know your name. And God says, this is my name. I am. I am. Not we are. But I am at that very significant moment. There was a a reiteration that this was one God who was at work in his world to bring about his redemptive rescuing purpose. 
And so the Jews began rhythms of prayer and reflection that come out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on. And so every day, morning and night, they would pray this verse, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It couldn't be much clearer than that. And then remember that moment. Centuries further on. Remember that moment when God was calling the prophets after uh, a bit like our life stories. There was tragedy and rescue and tragedy and more rescue. God was raising up the prophets. One prophet was Isaiah and he finds himself in the temple one day in Isaiah uh, chapter 6 and he gets filled with a vision of God's presence and he hears God speaking about sending people out into the world. And this is what uh, we read. Um, next one, here we go. This is what we read. And the Lord God said, oh, this is not it either. This will be it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And so at the moment you think you've got it all sorted out, At the moment that you think that Genesis chapter 1 and its kind of weird plurality about God can now be ignored, it comes back on the agenda. And the psalmist begins to talk about, where can I go from your spirit? A sense in which God is identified in in a different kind of person. And so there's this growing sense through the Old Testament whilst the oneness of God is unequivocally established, that within that oneness there is a duality or a plurality, which winds us right back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, when it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image. And then in chapters 2 and 3, when you get to chapter 3 and there's the fall, then God comments they wanted to be like us. And instead of those nods and winks being misprints that we can move away, suddenly Isaiah brings it back on our agenda. So what is this God who is, who is so most definitely one and yet somehow three? And what we see implicit in the Old Testament becomes explicit in the new. And we would expect that. We understand the New Testament to be a greater revelation of who God is. What we've seen dimly, we'll see more clearly, and one day we will see completely. And so when Jesus comes along and the New Testament story begins, there's a fascinating confrontation that we have to face about the oneness of God. Because the New Testament tells a story not of one, but of three. Christmas, it tells the story of a father who sends the son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says again and again, you don't see me doing my own stuff. The stuff I do is the Father's stuff. It's the Father in me doing His 
work. And so if the beginning is about the father sending a son, the middle is about the son doing the father's work. And then when you get to the end of the Gospels, that moment, that crucial moment in the garden, the son says ultimately, not my will but yours. The son surrenders himself to the father's will. As a consequence, the father raises the son. Jesus didn't raise himself. God, it says in Acts 2, raised him from uh, the dead. And then it says, the father and Andrew read uh, from that ancient hymn about the father exalting the son. The whole thing goes full circle, but not before The Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will testify about the Son because he wants to honour the Father. And we can study all of those verses. So we get quite a different feel, a different kind of God, if you like, uh, revealed. And not surprisingly, that gave theologians a bit of a headache. Is it one or is it three? Yes. Just like last week. Yes. You see, some theologians, um, depending on their kind of disposition and the context in which they are working and writing, uh, are absolutely and understandably keen to reassert that we believe in one God. And then there are other theologians, probably because of their personality and their perspective and the context in which they're writing, go, yeah, but hang about. The fullness of the story that we read in the Scriptures is about three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to talk about the threeness of God. And just because people do, they fight. This one over here wants to fight this one over here, and this one over here wants to fight this one over here, because we all like to be right. And for 300 years, those with mega minds tried to work out what we might say is impossible to work out. But by about the 4th century, so 300 and something, everyone was so exhausted it all settled down. You know when you've been fighting with your spouse for so long, you can't remember what the fight's about, and you're all exhausted, so you just kind of pull into a lay-by, well, whatever. And they pulled into a lay-by by some of them over here, if you want to read about them, like the Cappadocian fathers, for example, who sort of just relaxed into thinking about three, And then you've got the people over here who are just so fed up with fighting and they couldn't work it all out, like Augustine, who settled into, well, we're just going to talk about one. Where does our theological tradition mostly come from? Over here or over here? Well, it does come from this, but we, believe it or not, carry a bias. Absolutely here, Western theology has been overwhelmingly dominated by Augustine's assertion in a one God, and Eastern theology has been much more open to the threeness of God, the kind of 
fluidity of the whole thing. And as a result, our tradition, and it's been, I think, reasserted in modern minds because we know that one plus one plus one doesn't equal one, and we don't like things that we can't work out. We have reasserted, I think, over the last 100, 200 years in Western theology, our emphasis on the oneness of God. And that's not wrong. Big cheer for us. We were right all along. But so are they. And that's where it gets difficult. And what we need to do, what I need to do, what our whole understanding of God needs to do, is to embrace that which the Scriptures clearly teach, but have been less our natural home. And we can get stuck, just like we can on the whole creation thing, six days, six minutes, six hours, 600 years, whatever it might be, we can get stuck with our own incomprehension of what's going on. One plus one plus one doesn't equal three, unless maybe you're talking about God. And somehow it does. And the fact that we can't understand it is to me, in a certain sense, reassuring. Because I would expect there to be things about God that I can't understand, if he truly was God. And so there is. Bruce Milne, I think it is, says, um, I love this quote, for, for, for all the difficulty, the Trinity is simply the price to be paid for having a God who is great enough to command our worship and service. So we can spend all our time wondering about how it works. Oh, it's like a Jaffa cake. Have you heard that one? No, neither have I. Yes, I have. Or it's like ice, you know, ice and water and gas. It's all. None of them work. None of them make sense to the what is. And the what is that we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it must be true because we sing songs like that. What does the threeness of God teach us? What does the threeness of God bring into sharp focus that is not as clear if we think more often, most naturally, about God being one? What does the mystery mean? It means this. At the heart of the universe is a relationship. At the heart of everything, there is a community. We are made in the image of a God whose very essence is to know and be known. We are made in the image of a God whose very essence of being is to know and to be known. Which suddenly moves our faith away from every other religion on earth because it says right at the get-go, right at the outset, that whatever we are about, it is about relationship with Him first. To know and to be known. The Trinity is a massive theological shout-out to the God who wants to be known by you and to know you. 
at the heart of the universe is a relationship into which you are invited. The Trinity is the biggest declaration in the whole of Scripture that God wants to know you. It's amazing, really. You know, you see a book in a theological library on the Trinity and it's about this thick, isn't it? And basically all it means is God wants to know you. Because the very essence of who he is, is relationship, to know and to be known. Feel the force of it for a moment. At the heart of the universe, if God was singular, one God, i.e. none of this relationship or relational component, if God was there way before he'd created anything, outside of time... No one to talk to, no one to relate to, no one to love, no one to give to, no one to receive from, then being completely on your own would be good because God is good. If God existed all alone, then loneliness is the baseline of what it means to be good, because God is good all the time. But almost the very first thing that God says about mankind is it is not good for man to be alone. You go, whoa, God's been on his own forever and ever and ever. He makes someone in his image and goes, it's not good for them to be alone. Why? Because God was never alone in that sense. God was always in relationship, always giving, always receiving. And it's out of that relationship that the whole universe was created. That's why it doesn't matter how beautiful the world is, how rich and various is its variety, how productive our work and our labor, we all need relationship because it transcends everything. Relationship was there in the beginning because it always was. So through this lens, through this understanding, priorities emerge. Above all else, the priority of our personal response. To think that God wants you to do something first, to think God wants you to achieve something as of first importance, to think that what matters is a behavior that you have, is to completely miss the whole point of a God who in relationship creates more like him to be in relationship with him. And as we talked about last time, on, on last week, no one on their deathbed wheels in their GCSE certificates, just for one final reminder. But we will ask people to come from the ends of the earth to be with us because relationships matter most. 
And in those twin towers that were tragically burning down and people made those last phone calls, they did not ask whether the bathroom had been cleaned or whether the rubbish was out. They said, I'm just phoning to say I love you. Because somehow we know deep within the core of our being, just like we said last time, that the relationship trumps, transcends, is bigger, matters more than anything and everything else. It's our personal response and the priority of our relationship with others. And I don't think anyone of us would disagree with that. But sometimes it's easy to live in a way that betrays our disbelief. When we make decisions that sabotage our relationships, when we prioritize a job over a person or a career over a family or whatever it is, or a location over a set of relationships, we can so easily fall into the, 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 the polemic the, the, of our culture that says if you have this, this and this, it will make you happy and you will feel successful. And we all know that isn't the truth. And we need more courage. I mean, I gulped a little bit when Alan says about just giving up your jobs because there was something more important to do. That doesn't quite fit with our Protestant work ethic. But it's about saying there is, a, that there is a transcendence to the quality of our relationships that we're called to embrace that puts those above so many other things. And the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us that relationships are far more important. As indeed does the whole notion of living for others. That beautiful passage that Andrew read. Jesus, even though he was in very nature, God, didn't consider it something to be grasped, but emptied himself. The Son served the Father. Jesus was always giving way to the Father. And then Jesus would give way to the Holy Spirit and say, look, it's good that I go because I'm going to send another one whose season is coming into fullness, who will bring all the goodness of me. I'm giving way to the comforter who will come uh, among you. And then it goes complete circle as the Father gives way to the Son and exalts the Son to the highest place. And so you have this relationship where each is giving way to the other. We're designed to live in relationships of mutual submission. All of us. That's the way it works. If you can find another model where human beings flourish, and we've been looking for one for as long as the earth has been in existence, then let us all know. Mutual submission is the way relationships work because it's the way real relationships are and always have been. What we see in the Scriptures, the way God works, is in accordance with His nature, who He is. And you've heard people perhaps argue about the imminent trinity and the economic trinity, whether that's the way God is in His nature or it's just the way God is in terms of the way He acts in the world. That, that's all a kind of misnomer. Who God is, is revealed in Scripture. He, he lives this self-giving relationship, one with 
another. And if you've got a relationship that isn't working, just submit, because it'll work out of a lot better. Well, I said something wrong. It's gone awfully quiet. I'm feeling a bit cold in the room now. I thought I was amongst friends, but I feel a bit nervous. In what ways will you live for others this week? Because that's the only way the thing works. And we could go on, but we're running out of time. The priority of partnership. We champion the individual success. The, the icons of our age are people like Ellen MacArthur, who sailed single-handedly around the world. I mean, that's just amazing, isn't it? Mind-boggling achievement. And those are the kind of things that we can get caught up in and most celebrate you know, the, 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 the man or the woman that walked to the North Pole with a chill bottle and flip-flops or something, do you know? And we just go, wow, that's amazing. I want to be like them. But that, that, that trumping of the individual absolutely grates ultimately against the way that we are made. We are made for partnership. The most powerful thing you can say Maybe this week is, do you know what? I need help. I need help. For some of us, that's the last thing we want to say. Are you with me? Because I want to do it myself. Someone in our family will remain nameless, drives all the way from Wales to Ipswich with the sat-nav in the back seat. Why is the sat-nav in the back seat? I didn't want it to think I couldn't do it by myself. And we're all like that if we're not careful. What builds relationships is that commitment to partnership. I absolutely need you to live the life God's called me to. Whether you like it or not, you absolutely need me to live the life God's called you to. I need help. That's the vulnerability that builds relationships. Are you with me? When someone says, in this whole church environment, can I help you? Whatever you do, don't say, no, I'm all right, thanks. And I did that last week. I think it was last week. It might have been the week before. It's been a bit strange in our world. Almost everyone around me is fallen with dreaded sicknesses and stuff. And Margaret Cameron said to me, was it last Sunday? It might have been the Sunday before. She said, would you like a meal or two? Maybe I made up the two bit. Maybe she was only offering one. But anyway, the sentiment's there. And, and I went, no, I'm all right, thanks. I've been starving all week. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. But it's so easy, isn't it? Because we're, we're self-sufficient. We're our own people. I, I can cope. I'm, I'm a modern man. I, don't, I can do it all myself. I need help. I need help raising my kids. You see, my kids need more marriages to look at closely than just ours. You with me? They need more adults who are fired for Jesus than we can provide. They need more people to inspire them to go big dreams for Jesus than we can give them. Whatever happened to a whole village to raise a kid? We need help. I need help. And honestly, I've looked. You need help too. But I don't want to. I want to do it myself. Where this week, will you rely on somebody else?
That will get you closer to the life God has for you than most other things you could do this week. That's what the Trinity to reflect. Oh Lord, you know the deepest cry of our hearts. You alone are our living hope. In trouble and in in sickness, you alone can help us. And in our relationships, helpless, we stand before your throne. Jesus, Holy Spirit, we long to know you more deeply. Only you can fill those lonely moments in our lives. We need you, Father. We choose to love our family. Let's just take a moment to think of those people that we've fallen out of relationship with. Help us to make that phone call. You can break every chain in your name, Lord.